I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architect, Tom Emerson, who together with Stephanie McDonald founded 6A Architects in 2001. In addition to leading the practice, he has taught in the UK and in Switzerland, where he is currently a professor at the ETH Department of Architecture in Zurich. Emerson's teaching focuses in part on the reuse of the city and on landscape as a new paradigm for architecture. I met with Tom in February at 6A's studio in Bloomsbury, where we talked about, among other things, his formative encounter with the writings of George Perec, the Atlas project he has embarked on with his students, and the direct form of urban analysis it offers, and both the metaphoric and literal relationships he draws between architecture and the garden, defined by contingency, labor, and time. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Croquis on the practice about a lecture that you saw um, by these two Swiss guys mm. named Herzog and Demeron yeah. in 1990. Yeah. Uh, and that seemed to be uh, a kind of pivotal moment for you or a, kind of a, a key change in terms of how you understood what architecture could be or how it was represented. Yeah, I think it must have been <coughs> autumn 1990. So I was in my second year. And they came into do a lecture, um, both of them, and it's a very small school in Bath, so the whole school was there, or pretty much the whole school, but it didn't seem like much, like it wasn't a big, um, you know, big auditorium, and they um, presented something that felt incredibly new and fresh compared with the dominant kind of um, Sort of schools of thought that were around at the time. So there was postmodernism was very strong in architecture, but not in Bath because somehow you know it, it was a kind of modernist stranglehold. So there wasn't much mo- postmodernism going on in the school, but you felt it around. Um, deconstruction was very popular, uh, Morphosis um, and um, and the others. There were lots of books about them in the studio. Uh, there was a kind of old-school modernism that was very strong that came through, especially people like Michael Braun or Patrick Hodgkinson, who did the uh, Brunswick mm. Centre near here. So he was one of the sort of elder statesmen of the of the school. Um, so Herzog and Demuron, when they came in with these kind of very very reduced, kind of um, simple, uh, apparently simple projects that had this incredible 
power through abstraction and materiality, this kind of almost like essence of architecture. It was really new and uh, not just formally, but also in kind of character, in spirit, it felt, let's, let's say, more mysterious than political. Um, it, you know, it was a long time before the, you know, they did the Tate Modern competition, so they were also they were, they were fantastically obscure. So mm -hmm. that, added, that <laughs> added to the kind of allure of the whole thing. You describe your drawings as like dirty, um, yeah. and like they use black and white photography. So there's a, I guess that has to do with the aura of the work, the way it's represented. There's a kind of absolutely yeah obfuscation going on. So let's say things like whether it was deconstruction or even high tech that was going on at the time. Yeah. Um, <coughs> the work generally came through very high production values. Mm -hmm. You know, really complex drawings, um, really sharp line line work, very. Um, bright, cheerful photography, you know, sort of large format. And, so, and suddenly these guys come along and then they have, the drawings are like photocopies of pencil drawings. So they, there's, a sort of, there's a kind of granular quality to them. They're kind of, they're, they're sort of really moody. Mm -hmm. And the, a lot of the photography was black and white and, you know, on a dull day. And so it seemed to be like, Quite a, like super restrained, like almost mm. like uh, almost like really aggressively under representing it, and that was very that, there was something that meant that that you felt like you you wanted to know more. It was mysterious in a way in which that kind of high production that was kind of around at the time was unmysterious, was mm. sort of almost like advertising. It makes me uh, want to ask you about a certain representational style that's seems to have been cultivated by the practice. A lot of the drawings um, done by the office and done by the studio you lead at ETH, mm -hmm. they seem to be um, bordering on something like objectivity. Mm -hmm. um, and they're very clean. Yeah. And they're very all-encompassing. It's like they're trying to capture almost everything yeah. and leave nothing to the imagination. Well, those drawings, particularly the ones that come out of the kind of Atlas projects, the series of atlases that we've been doing at ETH, um, are line drawings, very, very fine line weight um, drawings. And the reason for that is really, let's say, as you say, it's a long way away from the kind of conversation about the Hertel and Demorand drawings, which were also incredibly analog. You know, there was something really kind of gritty materiality to them. These ones are not for a serious reason. So they are done by students who make surveys of cities or places. And you might have anywhere between 50 and 75 students producing them. And the aim is to produce one single document that represents, that is the site. Um, and in order for it to become one document which is sort of collectively owned and collectively used, um, we developed a way of drawing which was, would be somehow would erase the author. Mm -hmm. So that's why everybody draws in line. So essentially you can put them all together and it hangs together. Mm -hmm. um, the other reason is I suppose it's uh, almost like an inverse of the preoccupation um, that Hertog and the Muron's drawings did at the time have, which is to do with how do you use a line 
to represent everything. So the world is made of thousands and thousands of different things, different textures, different phenomena, different materials, different moods. Um, and to some extent, in the kind of world of drawing, the world of collage, you know, you can somehow match every condition with something that's more or less realistic. If you do it all in line, you're having to look harder because if wind, grass, brick and um, rain all have to be represented by the same medium, then that medium has to be put to work. So there's almost like a design exercise in and of itself to, to convert that multiplicity of phenomena into the singularity of the line. So it's really an exploration about drawing hmm. and about um, uh, how far can you push a line uh, in order to represent the complexity of the world. And those drawings also generally deal with multiple scales. So they go from, let's say, 50,000, 5,000, 500, 50, and 5, the scales of 5, which was a very Smithson thing, actually. Mm -hmm. That's where I got it from. So that every scale deals with an idea, whether it be the idea of the room, the idea um, of the territory, the idea of a component. Um, but then each one, there's a big conceptual jump between them. And then you have to somehow make, smash them together. So some of them are quite objective, like they might have the plan section elevation of a um, building or a place. But more often than not, they end up being quite inventive through the types of projections they use, so types of um, um, orthographic projection, overlaying facade with plan. Um, a lot of um, effort is spent drawing the kind of natural history, um, plant life, roots and all, gravel, earth. Um, as well as the kind of architecture. So it's about trying to absorb everything into the drawing. So far, there's been an atlas of uh, the city of Forst on the German-Polish border, one of Galloway on the western coast of Ireland, of Glasgow. I think you've done an atlas of tall buildings as well, which is kind of different Yes, yeah, so that's category. a different, different category. But still an atlas. Yeah. Um, and when I first heard about the atlas project, uh, I thought immediately of this... Um, Italian photographer Luigi Giri, he had an atlas mm -hmm. project too, I think, which was prompted by the photograph of the Earth taken from the moon right. and okay. trying to capture the world in its totality. Yeah. So he'd file away, I guess, images that he felt were appropriate to this kind of project of trying to represent the world in all its um, complexity. And obviously it's like, it's a failed project from the outset, of course, yeah. because you have to omit things when you're doing surveys. Well, that's maybe the, one of the keys to it is that the idea of doing the survey was to, to try to to try to break, you could say, a procedure that there is in architecture school, which divides analysis, research, and other names for it, from design and synthesis. And I suppose my argument is is that the survey is the first act of design by virtue of the decisions you make in terms of what you include and what you exclude. Because, mm -hmm. of course, you've got to exclude more than you can include. So, in a sense, you're reconstituting an idea and an image of the world or the place through what you decide to record. And so that's, that's for me, is like, so it's a very, 
is an uh, important part of the design process, that the first act of design is the survey. Mm. And it goes back to you know, even people like um, Rem Koolhaas and the Berlin Wall or um, Venturi, Scott Brown and Learning from Las Vegas. I think the f opening line of Learning from Las Vegas is it's the most radical thing that an architect can do is to look at what's already there. Um, or um, Robert Adam in the 18th century who then did the surveys of Split um, or Piranesi of course and all of, their, all of these surveys invent almost more than they record mm. so Piranesi, Rome hadn't yet been excavated when he was doing um, a lot of his drawings so he was speculating based on fragments of what the totality may have been um, Robert Adam's survey of Split is sort of partly the kind of ruin that he finds at Diocletian's palace, but actually a large part of the survey is a reconstruction in his mind um, through the act of design of what it would have been like. So there's a very long tradition of the action that a survey has on determining the future of a place. What I want to do now, because it seems like we're going to be bouncing back and forth in time mm -hmm. in terms of sure. your career, yeah. um, is to try and understand where this impulse for the atlas came from. Mm -hmm. I think that'll bring us back to uh, your studies mm -hmm. and probably, uh, I guess, beginning at the RCA, mm -hmm. certain figures that you and uh, Stephanie McDonald, your, your partner in business and in life, mm -hmm. encountered while at that school. Um, and so one uh, is George Parekh. Yeah. Uh, he was introduced to you by a poet friend of yours. Yeah. Um, George Parekh is a French uh, novelist mm -hmm. who um, in some ways writes about everything. Yeah. <laughs> so George Parekh and then there's an uh, artist named Richard Wentworth. He's a sculptor, a photographer. Um, he has his project Making Do and Getting By, which again is about uh, close observations um, and it creates a kind of total or all-encompassing uh, representation of um, lived life or human life or inhabitation. Yeah. And then the third kind of figure here is Tony Fretton, mm -hmm. who uh, it seems like he was a surrogate teacher for you. Or this is how you've described him. Yeah. But so these, these kind of three um, protagonists early on were influencing the way you thought, I guess, about observing uh, the environment. Um, and somehow made their way into your thinking about architecture and what it, what it could do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> let's take them in order. So when we were at the RCA, we came across um, Richard Wentworth, um, who was doing some crits in a workshop, and um, I can't remember various other things. And then we got to know him better later on when we left the RCA, and Steph was at London Met, and I was in Cambridge, and through various ways we got to know him um, better um, better and better. But you're right that the thing that really uh, grabbed us was the way in which he could find kind of meaning and intelligence and ingenuity and a kind of um, the source of our culture through uh, the examination, particularly photographic, recording of the city 
near where he lives, the Caledonian Road, through making do and getting by, which is this kind of ongoing recording and decoding of the world as it's made, the world as you find it, the world as it fails, um, how it breaks, how it's then repaired again, and what all of these kind of unconscious acts of design mean in terms of um, uh, the sort of the state of, um, of a society, of a culture. And he does it with unbelievable kind of wit. You mentioned he was a sculptor, so there's a very strong sense of the arrangement of things in the world physically um, that will somehow help to give all those pieces a kind of voice. Um, and that to us was completely thrilling. Um, his attention to the material culture, you know, <clears throat> what's the trajectory of, you know, casting through our culture, what's the trajectory of points, what's the trajectory of circles, how do certain forms relate to certain forms of typography, um, and so on. So this is kind of endless, kind of un, um, interpreting of the world, which was uh, completely thrilling, and it's somehow in a completely different way, in a completely different context, but I think with an enormous resonance was when we got into George Perec, which, as you say, was introduced to us by um, uh, a poet friend called Miles Champion, um, who, um, who is a kind of novelist, a kind of experimental poet, a kind of archivist. Um, and he um, Essentially, was I would say, let's say, if we take two of the big themes in um, his work, one he was interested in constraints and the the formal invention. This that, is Perec you're talking about. Yeah, George Perec, um, the formal inventions that may may arise out of introducing constraints. The other one is he was fascinated with um, recording the world as he experienced it, as he found it, or as he remembered it. So he was very interested in kind of biography. He was very interested, I think he said that there were four orders to his work. One was biographical, one was experimental, one was encyclopedic, and the other one I can't quite remember. Um, so, and he would look incredibly precisely at phenomena in the world, like the city, and try to find a language that could evoke it, not just describe it. Um, so it had a kind of a poetic order to it. And then he wrote this great novel about the city, about the apartment block, called Life of User's Manual, which is a kind of, sort of epic love letter to the architecture of the city and the lives that sort of are kind of enabled and can kind of live through it independently, how they cross, how they separate. Um, so it was a very, and it was also very much to do with subtleties, um, as is the world of um, Richard's work. And then during that period, we also bumped into Tony Fretton, who for a brief uh, period um, was tutoring us at the RCA. And although it was a very relatively short period, it was also really, um, I think it was a very pivotal moment when we were trying to find a voice or a gear with which to give agency to these kind of interests, literary ones, artistic ones. Um, you know, that half-remembered lecture, whenever it was, what, five years previously. Um, and we had both been very, very moved um, and influenced by the listen. Mm. 
that we saw as a project which was somehow embedded in conceptual and minimal art but somehow offering itself to the city and it was like a fundamentally urban and public project in its in kind of interaction between the gallery and uh, the street and the school and done with kind of incredible kind of control and, 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 and light means. And so I suppose that between those three that helped sort of somehow adjust the compass um, you know, this is still several years before we set up 6A, mm-hmm. but at least it gave us that sense of direction, which then led to Steph going to London Met and studying with Caruso Sinjin, and I went to Cambridge and then um, studied with Eric Parry, but then also wrote my dissertation about Georges Perec. And so it sounds neater with hindsight. At the time, you don't really know where you're going. At the time, you're just following, following your instincts, and see when they match with opportunity. I want to talk a little more about Parekh and mm-hmm. your decision to write your dissertation on him. Because uh, in some ways it seems kind of unorthodox for an architecture student to focus on a literary figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as you said, um, he's someone who's, I guess, directed the designer's gaze outwards towards uh, minutia and the quotidian and um, the banal and this kind of resonates with attitudes that architects like Caruso Sinjin were promoting. Hmm. Um, so in, in some ways it makes perfect sense. But also, um, I'm just curious what specifically you were looking at with Parekh, what you were writing about. Well, I suppose that during our time at the RCA, that's when we met this poet, Miles Champion. And at the time, uh, we were reading a lot of Calvino, who was in the same group as Parekh in the Ulipo. Um, oh, just for because I think people probably won't be familiar with what that means or what Ulipo okay. is. So, so we were we we were reading a lot of Italo Calvino, who is a kind of big hit, like modern Italian writer, whose Invisible Cities, but also other books are very urban and somehow speak to a kind of an architectural imagination. So, architects have often been into Calvino, and our friend, the poet, said, well, who had done a masters in modern literature in Manchester. He said, oh, if you like Calvino, you'll like Perec. It's like, and he sort of even said, it's even better. Um, and then it turns out that Perec and Calvino were very good friends and had been in a group called the Ulipo, which is, was a um, French, um, or not, or based in France, uh, experimental literary group that was composed of writers and chess players and mathematicians who would meet once a month to um, do experiments with constraints and algorithmic kind of rules of literature. They were like a splinter group who split away from the surrealists. So Kuno, Raymond Kuno, who, who set it up, who's very much Perec's mentor, had been, um, had been a surrealist, but then split uh, off because of automatic writing, which he completely disapproved of. And he said that essentially a poet um, uh, is less free if they are a slave to rules and constraints of which they are not aware than a poet who actually constructs and controls and explores the constraints which are inherent in language, inherent in culture. And they would use, let's say, the sonnet 
as the example that the, probably the form of poetry which has been the vehicle for the greatest sort of um, expressions of emotion and passion and love is actually the most highly constrained in its sort of um, um, in its kind of syntax and, and kind of rhythm and, and, and so on. And so anyway, so, so Perek was in that group and I was kind of quite into all of that. So, and through Miles, we got quite in, into experimental poetry, went to a lot of readings. So we were in a kind of quite a literary frame of mind. And um, at the time, Species of Spaces, which I think what Perek is almost best known for, was not translated in English. So that is a slightly practical and opportunistic reason for writing my dissertation about him, because nobody had heard of him. Huh. So it was exciting to, to write about someone that people didn't know about, that felt like it wasn't another dissertation about Aldo Van Eyck or another dissertation about Chinese gardens. It felt like it was new. Um, and my tutor, my director of studies, Peter Carl, so I would say I was going to say encouraged me to do it. it more or less forced me to do it. Hmm. Um, he's the one who kept on saying, "You know that that situationist guy you're into. Um, you should write about him." I'm saying, "Look, he's not a situationist. He's anything <laughs> but a situationist." He's sort of saying, "Whatever that French uh, novelist. He seems really interesting, and it seems new. You know, this is mid '90s, like '95 or something." So. Um, Partly I had read all the novels, I'd read all, and actually a lot of the, all the essays as well. Um, and it just felt like there was a subject here about the city, about the treatment of space in language that seemed really, um, really exciting and, and uh, new. I think now, I, for various reasons, I reread part of it relatively recently and I was a little bit embarrassed by it. Um, it's kind of quite naive, and there's been a huge amount of scholarship on Perek since. Um, but I sort of, what I did like was the enthusiasm. Like it had this kind of real, like, you know, you could tell that I was really, really into it um, and wanted to find ways of teasing out um, certain themes that might be useful to the architect, which are to do with the relation with methodology, rules, constraints, observation, um, n you know, not judging mm. what it is that you see, allowing the world to kind of unravel in a way in which you give it every chance to gain meaning. Um, so that's the that's really the reason why, and it was you know it was a, and and Peter Carl's kind of support and direction of it made it also completely thrilling. This is an amazing teacher. I want to jump now just to the establishment of 6A mm -hmm. as a practice. So this happened in uh, 2000? Um, the, 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 well, different dates. Okay. So the place, the studios, 6A, uh -huh. which is our address, um, this, which was a little studio, a little um, warehouse building, had been Tim Ronalds' office. And when he won a competition for the Hackney Empire, he moved out to a bigger office. Um, and offered it to Pierre Davoin because they were friends, as mm -hmm. I said, in the 9H scene. Uh, Pierre had an office in West London, in Queensway, so it wasn't interesting to him, but he told me about it. And um, so we went to see it. And um, although it's a kind of a commercial building, like a little warehouse, um, it's also an amazing place to live. 
So basically, and it was super cheap. That was the main thing, like <laughs> really, really cheap, and right at the centre of town. So we just jumped on it, got it, and then lived there for a few years, for a couple of years. Um, it's also during that period that our son was born, and um, we started doing competitions. So our first built work is 2001, which is let's say one of the let's say. Uh, dates of creation of the office but in fact we had been working in various forms before that on competitions or Steph had been working on some uh, residential projects uh, beforehand but you're right we entered a competition under the name 6A because it was where we all used to meet and in fact there were four of us at the beginning mm. um, and so we just said okay let's put it in a 6A and then somehow I think we got shortlisted and then the project got published and then that's when the name stuck, because it had been printed. Um, <clears throat> and well, it's interesting that um, all this was happening around the time you had it, just had a child. Mm. I mean, I just had a child actually about four months ago, and so I'm feeling this kind of uh, tension or urgency <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, that maybe uh, was part of the catalyst for you to, yeah set up on your own as well? I think that there was an itch that had been around for a while um, that we wanted to, we, we would want to do something. And then I think when our son was born, after various periods of, after kind of maternity leave and then going back to work, there was a certain sense of frustration that the kind of timetable of life in the office didn't quite suit the circumstances. Like, you know, this idea that, you know, um, Steph might want to leave work earlier in order to be good lorry, but then um, the interesting work would get done at midnight by some young graduates and so on. And in the end, we just thought, well, what the hell? I mean, our world has just been thrown upside down by having a, uh, a child. I mean, why not just throw in a bit more <laughs> variables a bit more unknown and then let's and have a go and we then that's it was during that period that then we got the first uh, signs of doing the first built project the first kind of publicly vis visible built project which was a, a shop in Savile Row called Okidi which we got through various I mean in a sense it was kind of again it goes right back to actually Steph's childhood a very very close friend of hers um, called Jimmo um, from Croydon in the 80s um, uh, was very close to a group called Tomato which is this multimedia group um, graphics, filmmaking, web design, interactive design um, they were also the people kind of um, some of them were the people in Underworld the band mm. Um, they did things like they worked on train spotting. They were in the kind of late nineties. They were like mid late nineties. They were like the, the, the hippest graphics people in town, and um, uh, they had a space in Soho where Jimmo had a show, which we sort of curated, designed um, with him, and then through them this the project for Okini came about, and then that's really when. Um, you could say we were both earning our living from working at 6A. Mm. Not working anywhere else, not doing it just you know, evenings or one of us in a job, the other one work. So that became our 
livelihood, mm. um, that and, and some teaching. And so Okini was a, an early uh, online retailer, and this was the design of a physical uh, yeah. outpost where people could try on the clothes they'd order on the internet. Yeah. Uh, there were stacks of felt, uh, notably, where the clothes were displayed on, and then a kind of offset um, plywood wall. It wasn't plywood, it was oak. It was oak. Yes. Posher than that. Just Savile Road. Of course. Um, and that got a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, and then I guess in the story of the work of the practice, things kind of go quiet until much later when Raven Row was finished in 2009. Yeah. And in that interim, I know you were teaching a lot, um, mainly at um, first the AA and then at Cambridge. Yeah. Um, I guess before we talk about the teaching you did, I'm curious, like, what happened in the interim? Well, yeah, I suppose it's less visible, mainly because of maybe how things have been published. But in between time, so we were doing, we did quite a lot of residential work, like we architects do, quite a few house, house extensions in London. Um, we did quite a lot of exhibition design. Uh, um, but there were a few years, I would say, 2002 to 2005, where we didn't have a huge amount of work. It was quite tough. Um, and I was teaching at the AA. Um, and then, in fact, we were doing a competition in 2004, I believe. And it was really tough. We really had very little work and we were in quite a lot of debt. And I remember we decided one day, it must have been around New Year, we said, look, if it's not better by, in fact, it was, yeah, it, if it's not better by September, then we might have to think about jacking it in and getting a job. Yeah, it's kind of too stressful, too hard, too, we're too poor. Um, and um, in the, um, spring we won a competition in France for some housing, some social housing and then we did a project called Harrywood which was a collaboration with um, uh, textile designers, fashion designer called Ely Kishimoto which was a little kind of tower on Old Street um, and then by June we were doing Raven Row mm. so suddenly you know so that's 2005 um, but of course, Raven Road takes four and a half years to do. So, in fact, nobody, we were busy doing it, but um, nobody could see anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for us, it's not a gap. Right. You know, it's maybe just in terms of visible output, there seems to be a bit of a gap. I mean, um, Harrywood was quite heavily published for a while, but it was a temporary structure. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 2006, we won the job to do South London Gallery. So we had South London Gallery and Raven Road going on simultaneously. And then we, during that period, let's say 2004 to 2009, we were doing a lot of hotel work, which not many people have seen. Huh. Um, we were doing it in collaboration with um, Ilsa Crawford, Studio Ilsa. You know, and that was a whole new brand and a whole series of, of five or six different sites all going on simultaneously. But then um, that was completely killed by the crash. Mm. So 
so that disappeared. So a lot of work that happened and was built during that time never really got seen because it was never really launched. Right. Um, it's there to go and stay if you want to. Um, but um, and then in two thousand and eight, we won the competition for Churchill. Okay. Um, so in our let's say in our minds, this is Churchill Co College in Cambridge. Churchill College in Cambridge, yeah, which is a project that finished in two thousand sixteen. Um, but that was also killed by the crash. Hmm. So the crash was a terrible moment where everything stopped. So, so the Raven Row had just been done just before South London Gallery bridged the crash just into 2010. Um, but it was very difficult. You know, like we lost all that hotel work. Um, anything vaguely commercial we had disappeared. Um, so yeah, so I could I could see that people might kind of go, oh, there's Okini. Then the Raven Row, and there's, you know, what were they doing for eight years? Well, it's funny because I thought, I mean, it makes perfect sense that the financial crash would have been the cause of this. But I also was thinking, I know a lot of practices have work they just don't show mm. for different reasons. Maybe it's about, um, it's a kind of bread and butter project, and it isn't necessarily something uh, that um, resonates with the the kind of aesthetic of the office or the kind of quality that they aspire to in some cases, or um, they're kind of figuring things out and the later kind of style of the practice is much different than the earlier. Mm. And so I, I was kind of hoping there'd be some anomalies. I think we deliberately decided that we would um, not publish and not show things like residential work because that is so much the trope of the London-based architect, the kind of, you know, the, the new practice, um, that we were really worried that we would get stuck in it. Um, and so we would do these projects, but we'd never show them. So to some extent, there is a sort of an unseen catalogue. Mm. Um, and we were much more interested in showing work that was... Um, that had a kind of public dimension to it. So Okini is not a public project, but it's part of the street, it's publicly accessible, it had an attitude, um, it was very, you know, it had a various positions in relation to kind of art practice and fashion and leisure online, you know, this, this emergence of a kind of online culture was really, really new at the time. So we, were, we did curate our, what people saw quite carefully. We certainly did, we, we were not the sort of people like where we'd finish something and then show it. It'd just be like, no, 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 mm -hmm. no, no. Hmm. Um, until it felt like the right, so, until it felt like something that we thought would carry, would be able to help us move to the next place.
I want to jump now. Um, well, I guess I just want to put on the table what I eventually want to get to, mm -hmm. which I feel like is actually the most important subject of the conversation. And it's, it's the garden as mm -hmm. an idea. I want to get there. Um, but uh, I think as a way of approaching that topic, which is something that I think it, it, it's very clear is central to both the practice and the teaching you do, um, I, I just want to quickly talk about uh, your early teaching. Mm -hmm. um, first at the AA, um, with people like Peter Beard, yeah. who is a landscape architect. No, he's an architect. So when I taught, I taught for five years at the AA. I taught for a couple of years with Pierre Dabouin and Miraj Ahmed mm -hmm. in the first year. So that was very much the continuation of that, that period of working with Pierre. Um, and then Pierre left, and I was asked to teach with Peter Beard, who was an architect who had worked with Peter Salter in the 80s on some of the sort of Japanese things. But his main subject was, you could say, landscape infrastructure, uh, particularly large-scale post-industrial or post-military landscapes, and how, um, how one can... Uh, reconstitute a kind of a public territory out of those landscapes and allow both their ecologies and their um, industrial or leisure work life to sort of coexist. Um, uh, and he was, I think, I think, uh, an extraordinarily talented architect and way too unknown in our subject. But that's maybe for another time. Mm. Maybe we should go and interview him. I think he's a <laughs> okay. profoundly interesting um, architect. So that was a great, a really fantastic time to... Um, in fact, I had wanted to, to study with him when he was teaching in Cambridge, but he left. So when I got to teach with him, it was like me doing the course, mm. sort of, um, the course I had always wanted to do. But that had a very strong landscape structure to it. Um, um, and then... Uh, I think 2004, I believe, I think it's around 2004, uh, Mosa Mustafavi left the AA, who was the chairman, and he got replaced by Brett Steele, and uh, Peter and I were very much under Mosa's wing, so we weren't really part of the next project. So we left for various reasons, and I went to Cambridge, and then um, carried on working. We'd been working a lot in the kind of... Uh, Thames estuary, Thames, um, uh, like Dagenham and Raynham and places like Raynham that. Marshes. So that's an ongoing project that Peter Beard's been involved in. Yeah, he'd been, so he had been, it'd been the subject of research for many, many years before the GLA through Mark Brearley sort of said, right, we could really do something with this place, what was then called the Thames Gateway. How do we make this kind of, how do we remake a public, a, a kind of public landscape around the river? in this post-industrial setting. Um, I wonder if anybody's been thinking about that. And then it turns out that Peter Beard had for many years and did many, many, I think, brilliant projects out there. Um, and then, yeah, I went to Cambridge um, and it was really looking at, the unit was really based around um, tectonics, materiality, making massive models, very kind of direct, um, and quite sort of opportunistic um, idea of materiality. So it was almost like a kind of an anti zumptor mm. um, more contingent. And you could say uh, was 
the was you know um, bricolage before before it was named. So working with any material that comes to hand, um, and then somehow acting first and reflecting later, rather than the kind of a priori conceptual position, and then um, and then somehow delivering it through design. Uh, so I did that for about, I think about six years. Uh, so for quite some time, and then did a collaboration with Richard Wentworth again. So stayed close to Richard all the way through all of this. And uh, so then it was one year where we did a collaboration between our students and his students at the Ruskin School of Art in Oxford. Essentially, our unit was to design the, the new Ruskin. Mm-hmm. There were various kind of real reasons for doing that. And that was the year from which um, uh, some of Assemble came out of that year. And some of Assemble come from the Ruskin, and some come from Cambridge, (coughs) sort of hanging around that year. And so just quickly to hang on that idea of bricolage, because it's also, I guess, an attitude or part of the Mm. practice's identity that's been um, formulated, I think, in partnership with uh, critics and artists, and Mm. and maybe in particular uh, the architecture critic Irene Scalbert, who co-wrote? Who wrote? Who wrote? Uh, Never Modern, which mm. is a, a small book with very big ideas in it about the work that Six mm. Architects does. Yes, so it was. I mean, known. Ir- Ir- met Irene at the AA, sort of around about two thousand or whenever it was, and we had always we became friends, and we used to meet and talk a lot about architecture, about lots of other things too. Um, and Irene had had a very strong interest in anthropology and also in literature and he's French so we sort of bonded over various things like that Um, and he is the one who sort of in a sense introduced kind of Levi Strauss's idea of bricolage to our the way that we worked and um, that was very exciting because somehow he found he gave he found um, a voice, or he gave he found a way of speaking that seemed to fit the um, thing. And we were, you know, in a sense, it was more the subject of a conversation for many years before it was never modern. Right. Was this so? Was it given a name as you were teaching, or was this like kind of like discovery made about your methodology after you had been teaching at Cambridge? Um, it was during. I don't know if that distinction matters. It's just interesting. It was during. I think we were doing what we were doing in practice and in teaching. Um, and there was, look, I guess, <coughs> plenty of crossover. Um, and it was during that period that we started discussing um, Levi Strauss and, um, and bricolage in terms of. Uh, uh, Levi Strauss, which Irene sort of introduced us to. So, um, uh, and then it somehow seemed to fit as a kind of state of mind, as an attitude. It was like, yes, no, this is. Uh, and then we, yeah, we experimented with a few other uh, writers and, and thinkers that that, um, uh, that we were discussing, um, things like ad hocism and stuff like that. But that seemed to. Uh, somehow too American. <laughs> um, uh, like it didn't. It didn't seem to. It seemed to be too well packaged as a kind of architectural position. The Levi Strauss one was nice and like like kind of 
Perek or something like that, because it's a sort of um, it's written rather than architectural. It doesn't predetermine a certain output one way or another. Mm. So that's why I think non-architectural references are something that we've often been drawn to more more easily, um, just because it means you can do whatever you like with them. Uh -huh. um, architectural references are slightly more of a burden. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so we carried on um, working uh, in teaching alongside um, those projects from, let's say, 2005, 2010, kind of Raven Road South London Gallery, which were, they were never designed with bricolage in mind. That bricolage seemed like a really great way of describing them mm -hmm. after the fact, uh, and um, and to some extent, um, I mean, the other person that we were discussing a lot at the time was Bruno Latour, and we have never been modern, um, and also the essay on design called A Cautious Prometheus, I think from about two thousand eight, um, in which you could say the um, the notion, I mean, actually in that essay there is a kind of, um, there is some discussion of bricolage in a slightly different context, um, but the idea of architecture and design being more a process of evolution and care and maintenance as well as the kind of the creation of new things, and he says at one point design is only ever redesigned mm. and so on. Mm. And it goes, and it's not that far from there to get to the gardener. Mm -hmm. The bricoler and the gardener are quite similar characters in many respects. They are both people who have to deal with the world as they find it and deal with everything, all the conditions that they find it. They can't determine the conditions. You know, a, a gardener cannot will a different client, a different climate. <laughs> um, a gardener can't design a different soil. It uh -huh. is what it is. And so you have, so I would say, so, and then, then the work became more and more interested and through the work doing, doing the work at ETH, which was really about the post-industrial city in Europe. And these were cities that had been either partially um, or nearly completely abandoned and disappeared. And there was a kind of reclamation by nature, which was very different to uh, a landscape that's been designed. It was really, th you know, through neglect. Mm -hmm. Suddenly these, these places, these environments emerged and then became more and more interested in this kind of intersection between kind of neglect, decline, decay, adjustment, bricolage, and that somehow they started formulating some sort of question about what what is what is nature, um, and of course that is the centre of Bruno Latour's book. We have never been modern, which has been sort of borrowed, tweaked, trimmed <laughs> to become never modern, uh -huh. um, because you know the, the reference is, is is clear there. So that is and that is a kind of a long conversation that we had with Irene mm. and it was really complete and it has been and it continues to be one of the most kind of uh, stimulating sort of ongoing collaborations you could call it 
um, that we've had and we've collaborated with many people, but never for kind of quite such a kind of long arc as um, Zero Nodes, which is like you know, we're pushing on 20 years now. Right. Can we talk quickly about your teaching at ETH now? Mm -hmm. sure. uh, I think it's really interesting how, um, even though these are two separate projects in a way, teaching and practice, mm -hmm. uh, they're represented very closely to the extent that the uh, website for 6A Architects and the website for the studio you run at ETH are almost identical actually. And this seems like a, a trend in other studios at that school as well, where the practice and teaching are kind of folded into each other. Mm. And it's difficult to tell sometimes where one begins and the other ends. Well, yeah, the, the, the two websites are very similar. There are some important typographic differences. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, and for those, we, we worked with John Morgan, mm. who's also a very important collaborator over m many years, like more than a decade. Um, he did a lot of the work on Raven Row, catalogues, signage, um, and we've worked with him on many things, and on Never Modern, for example. And he did the website for the office and for the for ETH, and the atlases, in fact. Mm, mm. Um, so th that's another important sort of part of the, um, part of the sort of the family. Um, and... Um, Yes, I guess I guess that they are different. They're different institutional institutions. They're different economies. They're different um, responsibilities and outputs. But in the end, as you say, there's only one project, right? And it has different uh, opportunities to um, to be explored. I mean, it's essentially you know, commissioned, built work here in the office at Six A, and then it's kind of pedagogical and speculative and research-led there. Um, but of course there are lots of things in, lots of things in common um, and the traffic is in both directions uh, in terms of which one feeds, um, feeds which. And I suppose that maybe also because we've, over the years now we have actually built quite a few things. I mean they've all been, almost all been temporary things at ETH. Um, I've been very interested in collective work, like what's possible to do with a very, very large group of people when they find common cause. Um, and so some of, the, some of these built projects are really the kind of result of that kind of exploration, construction, collective working, um, different technologies and so on. And then they, they led on to then to working, always working at opposite ends of the scale. So we're doing kind of producing an atlas while building a pavilion mm -hmm. kind of thing. So um, uh, the loose title for the studio is called Making in the Territory. Mm. So it's about trying to understand how certain landscapes, cities or rural landscapes are structured by certain, a certain culture of making and how certain culture of making is conditioned by the environment in which it is it exists in, mm. and that's both historically and in a kind of contemporary sense. You described the studio also as um, being interested in the reuse of the city, mm. um, and in construction and the garden and landscape as a new paradigm for architecture. And I just want to—I really want to now, as quickly as we can, uh, kind of burrow into this topic of the garden. Because mm -hmm. it's something that is, it's so fascinating to me um, and so surprising to see it manifest in an architecture practice like this. 
um, in a way that uh, you wouldn't expect. And what I mean by that is that, at least in my education, when, um, when ecology or environment comes into any conversation about architecture, the focus is on performance mm. and productivity and um, data mm. and measurement. And there's a kind of empirical um, positivist attitude towards what the environment can do with architecture or for architecture. And so looking at the way um, you approach environment, uh, it's in the first instance uh, much more poetic seeming, mm -hmm. especially with these Atlas illustrations, which take so much pleasure in drawing with the, the most intense detail and care everything in a city from the large-scale dilapidation of a, a warehouse to uh, the subtlety of uh, a root network. And I feel like what, what's happening there is uh, the kind of gaze is being shifted or the standpoint of the architect is being uh, changed to look at uh, environment differently. Mm. And um, to me that's exciting because uh, it opens up the possibility to uh, talk about subjects related to ecology that are probably more abstract or philosophical. And so this idea of care or taking care, um, I think it's more difficult to find a place for it when we talk about productivity in ecology. And then this word sustainability, which I've never heard you utter, no. <laughs> probably quite intentionally. Yeah. Um, that's just interesting to me. There's a kind of uh, different approach to uh, thinking about landscape and ecology through architecture that you're taking. Yeah, I suppose that the the one of the premises that this that this is or one of the positions that it the work takes is to not distinguish between architecture, the constructed world, and nature as two things and that's the sort of you could say that is the also the the center of letters we have never been modern so he says we invented this description this distinction in the enlightenment when we decided that there was going to be a thing called nature and a thing called culture and and actually and that that separation which then ends up causing the picturesque which ends up creating all sorts of conditions that we live by now and are fundamentally problematic. So this idea that, that architecture, let's say the environment is somehow in the service of architecture or vice versa, they just, it's just all stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> and so somehow to be able to look at the weeds and the gravel and the rubble and um, the forest and the city as equivalent, without hierarchy, that they, they are the environment. They're the only one we've got. Um, and, then, and all of them need to be looked after in some form or another. And this is like the non-judgment of the naturalist at play, I yeah, think. And exactly. so figures like uh, R.S. Uh, Fitter. Yeah, I mean, Fitter is a very inspiring example, which, um, again, Irenae brought that one to the table when he wrote an essay about the green belt. Um, this is London so after the green belt. Yeah. I read this essay last night. And right. Actually, it brings up another question for me, which is the, to me, like the conspicuous absence of landscape architecture in the way that you frame the work that your practice does. 
because um, I think my discovery of the garden and its like potential in architecture came first through landscape architecture, mm -hmm. actually. And there are specific figures, uh, George Decombe in particular, I don't know if he rings a bell mm -hmm. or not, um, had this project called The Swiss Way, Yes. which um, I yes, think I its desire was to strip away layers of human intervention. Mm -hmm. And I must become invisible as a design project, mm -hmm. except he worked with an artist and um, one thing that stood out was uh, the, the polishing of glacial uh, boulders, mm -hmm. erratics. So there's these erratics throughout the block and an artist went in and scrubbed them completely clean so that they became these white anomalous objects in the landscape. But in fact, they're always there to mm. begin with. Right. And just revealed. Yeah, just revealed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that kind of attitude towards what exists I think mm -hmm. a lot of landscape architects are interested in that. There's a strong tradition, mm -hmm. even in rewilding post-industrial landscapes with Peter, people like Peter Latz. Yeah. There's James Corner, and then before well, him, Ian McCard. Peter Latz was very um, influential on Peter Beard. Yes. And used to come for crits uh -huh. and all that sort of stuff. So all that Duisburg stuff and post-industrial was So that was, that's in in Way the kind back. of memory in the memory tanks and um, then also like more recent um, figures Gunter Vogt yeah who, who writes a lot about gardens uh, as kind of he's metaphors a, and he's a colleague at ETH right um, and we talk about the garden that we're doing and and then also Catherine Masbeck I don't know if she um, she oh. she's designed a garden in Bordeaux it's a kind of teaching garden yes and again, this like interest in the garden for its like metaphorical potential yeah. uh, to stand for larger territories and to become an analogy for a certain way of yeah. of, um, of making. That's absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely it. So the way the garden started, um, like the actual story of how the garden started. So I'd been at DTH for five years, and we done all these pavilions and stuff and I felt I, at one point I felt like we've done everything we can do with these student made pavilions they've been super interesting super fun to do but in the end each one becomes bigger than the previous one higher crazier um, but in the end it just becomes on one level just dangerous <laughs> um, but also that's not what's interesting about them to kind of outdo the previous one so so stop doing them and then I thought, well, I really, really enjoyed the kind of collective work, this idea of kind of collaborating and being kind of competitors and then collaborators and how, that, how the whole social energy of a kind of group of students can somehow develop. So, um, and then in a crit, one of the Atlas crits, I believe it was the Glasgow one that Richard Wentworth was um, a critic, at one point, he turned around and faced the studio, like 50 people. He said, how many of you have dug a hole? It's like four hands or five hands went up out of 50. And it was sort of shocking. So he, and he said, you know, everybody, um, Richard is in his uh, early 70s now, he said, like, everybody of my generation has dug a hole. And, so, and then afterwards, it sort of struck me. And I thought, wow, this is amazing that we are all engaged in let's say, making architectural projects which are essentially rooted in the ground. And we know bugger all about it. Like, as a culture, we know nothing of this thing. 
this, which is not a line between air and solid stuff. It's like it's an organism with a very very complex material life, um, um, organic life, um, uh, animal life. And it's really complex, and we know so little. And I thought, okay, so it'd be really interesting to do a project in which you got some sort of understanding of what it is, even physically, the labour of mm. doing stuff in the ground. I mean, it's backbreaking stuff. Um, so that was kind of one of the things that was um, uh, motivating it. The other one was that in all the stuff through the atlases and the construction projects, uh, history and time are very important sort of aspects to it. But the one thing that you can't simulate in architecture school is the passage of time, which is somehow totally central to the act of the architect. You know, a project doesn't, isn't finished when the building is complete, it starts when the building is complete. You know, it's a kind of, there's this sort of false thing that, you know, through the semester or term or yearly program, you, you finish your project and you start another. And of course, if you build something, if you, when it's built, suddenly it comes to life, and then you have to be responsible for that thing. You know, mm. um, and I thought, how do you, how could you do something without like a completely um, contrived uh, mechanism? Introduce this notion of the passage of time and the things, the fact that things decay, the things grow, the things changed. I thought, okay, well, this idea of a garden where every year there's a new group of students who are responsible for it. And it starts as just this kind of bare field. And then every year they add either a little bit of construction, some sort of structure during the autumn semester, and then plant during the spring semester. And then the next cycle has to look after what the previous lot did, and then add something. So the rule is that you can add, but you can't take away. Mm. And you have to look after what happened before. So essentially, you end up, this project becomes kind of more and more layered um, and with more and more responsibility attached to it. And then that, that becomes, I thought, well, that might become um, at several levels an interesting pedagogical sort of metaphor for what being an architect is about. And it's about taking care of the world that you find and trying to make it a little bit better while also making sure that you don't damage what somebody else has done. What I love so much about it though is that it's a metaphor made real. Yeah. Um, which was so surprising to discover mm. because at first like I was just drawn to the analogy of mm. the gardener architect, you know, yeah. that the, um, the, the role of the architect is akin to yeah. and then there's this kind of literal I'm a simple fellow, really. No, 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 no but it's uh, no, and then, but then, there are other things at play, which is then you get the kind of the group action. So, uh -huh. like the garden. So we have a period about a week in uh, so end of March. It depends, and also it's very variable because you have to move your organisation according to the weather, mm. like how how soon winter is coming, how late it's, um, how soon or late spring comes so you sort of say this is in the program but it will be the week that's right for the garden not the one that's right for the academic calendar mm. and we hope we've planned it okay but we might have to change it so there's a sort of element of contingency to it which is quite exciting 
Um, and then, and I think that there's also the idea that you do something that's bloody hard work. So this this kind of uh, period of gardening, and then you won't see the fruits of it, literally and metaphorically, <laughs> for several years. And this idea that you know this thing, this is a slow game. This is not about producing, kind of, very fast, um, uh, immaculate objects. This is about kind of really thinking about the place and planning it and allowing the time it takes for it to happen. Mm -hmm. to, it, to me, it's such a radical project, uh, but at the same time, apolitical. Mm. Um, and I know that, I don't know if you've described the office or the work as being apolitical, but um, there's this term that's kind of come up in relation to uh, the teaching, amor fati, is that how you say it? It's like a love of fate. It's a oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nietzsche, um, which I think relates so closely to yeah. this uh, um, acknowledgement of contingency mm. and this acceptance of what's come before and this obligation to uh, maintain it in some way. This kind of accretion or additive process of design and collaboration. Mm. But yeah, this idea of like um, this love of the inevitable is kind of apolitical to some extent because you're giving yourself up to contingency you're acknowledging it and you're kind of giving yourself over to it um, which seems to be at odds with the political urgency of environmentalism or environmental causes i just wonder like well i would see that that's where maybe slightly take issue with you about it being apolitical i think it's I would say that it's about wearing its politics through um, a, different, a different discourse to the one which is conventionally used. So, as you said, I never use the term sustainability. Um, I find that most of the ecological discourse to be pretty crude. Um, and both Latour and actually Timothy Morton talk about, you know, like dark ecology and being ecological and stuff uh, like that, you know, um, um, about our incapacity to properly grasp the politics of ecology. Um, and so uh, I suppose to me the reason, the, 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 w the way in which the politics are played are partly to do with collaboration and authorship. They're also to do with labour. So there's a very, very strong element of this, which is to do with um, whose actions, um, uh, whose actions are giving agency to what, and what is the meaning of that of that labour? What is the meaning of that idea versus the physical action of making it happen? What's the value of it? Um, because again, I think that actually a lot of architecture has completely lost any kind of relationship. To labour, you know, that um, people have very little idea of what the kind of origins and kind of pathway a piece of stone takes from being a bit of mountain to being somebody's, you know, kitchen counter, you know, um, uh, and that that's really complicated. And that's got some very complicated politics and it's got some very complicated economies involved in it. At the end of its life, it's part of an incredibly high, um, 
highly produced economy. Um, but actually, the beginning of it is crude and you know almost pre-modern. You know. And how do, how does it how do things pass through these different technologies, economies, and in order to become you know to go from geology to taste? Um, is really is really complicated, and and to some extent, if you approach them too directly, it can become a kind of uh, a slightly um, annoying kind of rhetoric. Um, whereas I'm much more interested in it being in the politics of it being implicit rather than explicit, that they're just that you. You feel it and you know it. That's why. That's why you go and look at these places. That's why you go, and sur- you don't collect data. You go and survey it for yourself, feet on the ground. Um, I think it was Richard said, you know, feet on the ground, eyes in your head, you know, <laughs> um, uh, so that you 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 are not processing information. You are processing a very direct experience of the world. Tom, thanks so much for your time. No, pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Kim Loy Wong. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Tom Emerson, and special thanks this week to David Grandorge and Irene Skelber. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.